A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole sitting in for Ira Glass. This is not a story about bicycle theft. It's a story about a counterintuitive impulse exhibited by the human species, in which a lot of bicycles happen to get stolen. The first bike belonged to a physical therapist named Carrie Helminger. This was in Seattle back in 2015. She rode her bike to work like always, locked it up securely like always, and when she came down to get it at the end of the day, it was gone. She felt about this how you might imagine. Mad, you know, like, why do you want my bike, and now how am I going to get home, and it's late, and I'm tired, and just frustrated and pissed and all that. The cops were remarkably responsive, came right away. They were also deeply pessimistic, said all the usual things. You're not likely to get it back. We get reports like this all the time. There's really nothing we can do unless something happens. Carrie wasn't sure what that meant until something did happen. She was at work the next day, tending to her physical therapy patients, only checking her phone now and then between appointments. And I remember seeing this text from a number that I didn't know that just said something like, I may have found your bike. And I'm like, what? What do I do with that? You know, I don't know who you are. Is this a joke? Is this a scam? Like, right. that was the thing that kept crossing my mind a lot. Is like, is this some weird scam? W- were you, like, trying to mathematically figure in your head, like, how the scam might have worked if it was a scam? I mean, I don't know how they would know it was me. So this is the thing that I kept trying to figure out. Like, would they steal my bike and then know it's me and then ask me for money and then they'd make money on it and they'd give me my bike back and they've got, you know, $100 more or something? Which... Carrie says that would have been fine with her. It's better than having no bike. Anyway, she didn't know how to respond. Put the phone down, examined more hips and shoulders and knees, came back to another text. That said, was your bike stolen? I think I may have found it on Craigslist. And so I'm like, okay, so this is the same guy. You know, more questions. And so I'm like, yes, it was stolen. Who are you? You know, and then I think, you know, at that point, he probably responded and said, I was looking for a bike for my wife. I was looking for a bike for my wife, and this ad came up on Craigslist. Real questionable. This is the guy who was texting. Dirk de Groot. Works in marine construction. Big cyclist himself. By questionable, he means the ad was poorly written. Listed the bike for way less than it should have cost. A couple of blurry pictures taken at night, and you're thinking, who the hell takes pictures at night? So I did a little bit, you know, some Googling, and I found Bike Index. It's a site where people can register their bikes and report them stolen, as Carrie had done. He said, I saw that you posted it on Bike Index. And so I'm like, ah, you know, this is like starting to sound a little bit more legit. But I still have no idea who he is. I think we spoke probably around my lunch break. And he told me that he was maybe going to go get the bike. And I was like what? And he was like, yeah, I, and I remember him saying at one point, like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of jazzed about this. Like I'm getting a little adrenaline high from this. And I'm like, part of me is like, great. You know, that solves that problem. Like somebody, if he wants to do that, but like, are you nuts? Like, why do you, why do you want to do that? And be careful. Like I, that would be the scariest thing for me. There's no way I would ever do that. Dirk did do it. Arranged to meet the guy selling the bike. Except when he got to the appointed spot, Unexpectedly, it was three guys. Two more than him. He gives the bike a once-over, 
careful to check out the serial number when she'd gotten from Carrie. And sure enough, it's hers. At this point, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> okay, I've got this piece of paper in my hand with a serial number, and I'm looking at these three guys, and I'm, I'm holding an Allen key, and I'm like, oh, God. So he takes out his phone, kind of subtly dials 911, and the call won't go through. No signal. So I, I lied, and I was like, yeah, well, that was the cops, guys. They're on their way. And as if there were ever any doubt as to the provenance of the bike... One of the guys, at the very mention of the police, just takes off running. So he scoots off, and there's two guys, and they're both sitting there a little agitated. They don't know if I'm lying. And I'm, it's, Seattle's pretty steep, so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I could, like, Sparta kick one of these guys down the hill. <laughs> Sparta kick. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with the other one. Look at this. I'm, I'm tall, you know, but I've had my ass kicked so many times that I, my friends will tell you I'm not a very good fighter. And then... After several long moments, with the three of them just kind of staring at each other, as though bidding farewell to a couple of drinking buddies for the evening, Dirk says, Well, guys, you know, we're in kind of a stalemate. I'm just going to take it. Threw the bike in the back of my truck. And then, you know, calls, it's your bike. I have it. Where should I meet you? (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) I just was so excited. He pulls up. Then he pulls my bike out, and I'm like, like and he's like here you go (laughs) it's like can I pay you what do you want And he's like no you don't need to pay me it's fine I mean it just was really crazy to me that like the night before my heart broken my bike is stolen and like the next night I can ride my bike home already it just felt weird which brings me to what the story is about the fact that Dirk's actions while seeming to come totally natural to him made no sense from the outside even to the person who directly benefited from those actions. Carrie's brain could not stop trying to make sense of it, even as she rode away that night. You know, you just did this huge, amazing thing for me that was incredibly kind, and I'm still very cautious of who you are. I don't know. And maybe that speaks more, you know, of me and the cautious nature, or I don't know. Or just, or it speaks to how, how just unusual it is. Yes. Like, would somebody really do this? Would they go steal my bike back for me and then bring it to me? Like, why would somebody do this? Why? There's got to be a catch somewhere. There's got to be a catch, right? Yeah. yeah. But there wasn't. Dirk just does stuff like this. Like if he's driving and he sees a cyclist with a flat tire. I'm like the idiot that stops on the side of the road. I'm like, do you need any help? And the guy's like, fuck off. Like, no, weirdo. Okay, well, let me know. He likes helping people. He can still picture how happy Carrie looked when he dropped the bike off. She was just fucking, st- I mean, stoked, absolutely elated. And, you know, seeing all this emotion on her face, you know, I, I'm not a very emotional guy. Uh, but I, I mean, I felt like just a deep sense of accomplishment and it felt just so good. That was a, a very specific feeling, you know, it, it's the same feeling I now get when I, come home from being gone for work for a week and my son jumps down the stairs to hug me. It's like, oh, wow, this is great. You know, I love this so much. It sounds like you're describing appreciation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that, hmm, that very well could be, you know, just feeling appreciated might've been, you know, the trigger. The trigger to make you want to keep doing it? Yeah, yeah, the trigger to make me want to keep doing that. And he did keep doing it. 
Before too long, he recovered a bike for a guy from Colorado who had just moved to town. Like Carrie, the guy was very grateful to have his bike back. Then there was the college student who bought Dirk a six-pack of IPA after he rescued her bike for her. Dirk doesn't really drink beer, though. The systems administrator who mailed him an envelope of cash, which wasn't even the nicest part of it for Dirk. I had his thank you card on my wall for, you know, my office for a long time. His methods were pretty consistent. Always started with obsessively scrolling sites like Craigslist and OfferUp to see what bikes were for sale, and then cross-referencing those against the stolen bikes on Bike Index. Then he'd message the person selling the stolen bike and say he's interested in buying it. Sometimes he'd give the cops a heads up and have them waiting nearby to swoop in at just the right moment. Other times, he'd just confidently and with an almost eerie calm say something like, Hey, I'm not accusing you of stealing this bike. I just know it's stolen. You may have stolen it. Don't care. And they would typically scoot off. It took him 10 recoveries before he really felt like he knew what he was doing. After the 20th one, a Seattle police detective who specialized in property crime gave Dirk his direct line, told him to always call and arrange for backup ahead of time. That sting, the 20th one, was significant in a lot of ways, actually. It wasn't just a bike theft. It was a home invasion. The thieves grabbed everything they could get their hands on. Dirk essentially cracked that case. One of the officers on duty that night looked at Dirk and asked him the perennial question. Like, why, why in the hell are you doing this? I was like, ah, it just feels really good, you know, to help these people. And he's like, oh, that's so interesting. You're like Robin Hood. He goes, no, Robin Hood robs from the rich and gives to the poor. I guess you're like Batman. And that was it. I mean, that was it. And they're like, oh, bike Batman. And that, I mean, it, it, it was sticky back. enough that it stuck. In fact, people are calling him Seattle's Bike Batman. Bike so, Repo Batman on Roll Against Thieves. That's right. They there call him the uh, the Bike Batman here. Oh, Batman. The Bike Batman here in Seattle. And uh, I think Brian Hans. The Seattle Times broke the story, followed by local TV and radio outlets other newspapers and magazines. In all of the accounts, Dirk stayed anonymous. He only decided to unmask himself for this story because he's not doing it anymore. He says he just hasn't had time for anything since his kids came along. But the newsworthiness of it was that someone would go so very far out of his way to retrieve property that wasn't his for people he didn't know. It was like the whole world had the same reaction as Carrie Helminger, the first person Dirk helped, who was mentioned in one of the magazine pieces. I had to laugh because in the article he writes, like, I think she thought I was a weirdo. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely thought you were a weirdo. Of course, the whole thing seems a lot less weird if you're Dirk de Groot. From his perspective, he figured out how to solve this problem. And once he figured it out, he couldn't not solve it because no one else was doing it. He was like, somebody's got to do it. I kind of knew what to do. And it was hard for people to... People just didn't know. Like, I, I, do you know what to do if you find your bike stolen on Craigslist? I actually can't think of a better way to spend your time on this planet than to identify something that's vexing someone else, or a lot of someone else's, and to put yourself into that gap between them and the solution. So today on our show, we're going to tell you about some remarkable people who do that, and why they do it, and how it goes or doesn't go for them. Stay with us.
There's this image that's really stuck with a lot of us here at the show. You might have seen it. It's a photo of strollers, baby strollers, at a train station in Poland. In short, these Polish moms anticipating a problem that Ukrainian refugee mothers might have when they cross the border, clutching their little kids, started leaving strollers for them at different points of entry. In the photo, they're all lined up on the train platform. Some fancy, some not. Some new, some with worn tires. Each one a Polish family thinking about what could possibly be helpful when everything else is falling apart and providing it. Another problem that the war has yielded, you've probably heard, is the lack of access in Russia to real, accurate information about what's going on, the brutality of the war. Essentially, the Russian propaganda bubble tamping down on public opposition, which is what Act One of today's show is about. And it's about someone on a personal mission to solve that problem. We're calling this act Cold Call to Action. That's from producer Elise Spiegel. Polo Sonota spent the first 13 years of his life in the USSR, so he knows how complicated it can be to live in a world with limited information. This was Lithuania in the 80s. And what Polis remembers about living in that world is the distrust and the haziness. You had your suspicions, a creeping sense that there was something off about the news you were hearing. But there was no way to know for sure, and no one around you knew either. So after Putin invaded Ukraine, Polis reached out to friends in Russia to talk about the war. These were educated people, well-read people. But the Russian version of what was happening made his blood run cold. The story they'd heard was that Russia was just trying to help with the genocide. There was genocide of Russian people going on all the time. And so we need to take out their government. If we, if we will not do that, they're going to go on killing Russian people in there. So we have this neat, tiny operation, military operation going on there. We're just taking off the government. In the world Russians knew, there were no pregnant mothers dying on gurneys, no leveled cities, no dead civilians at all. Some of them told, tell me stories about Russians bringing in food, and, 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 and clothing for Ukrainians. It was a whole parallel universe of information constructed and policed by Putin. Polis believes the foundations of that universe are more fragile than they look, that if the Russian people could really see, know what was happening in their name, Putin's Potemkin village might crumble. Someone needed to do something so Russians could understand the real horror of the war they were fighting. And then one day, Polis was sitting in a meeting and his phone began to buzz. It was a friend calling to say that he had an idea about how they might solve this Russians don't know about the war problem. Says, you know, Polis, what's funny about Russia? Say, I don't know. There's nothing funny about Russia to me. He says, they got their phone numbers public. So you just go online and you can get the hold of those numbers so we can call them. As they talked, the two began to piece together a plan. What if they built a website where you pushed a button and got the name and telephone number of someone somewhere in Russia? Russian speakers from outside Putin's sealed universe could call in, tell Russian people one by one, person to person, all about what was going on. Polis works in advertising. He spent his life trying to convince people to do something they do not currently feel a need to do. 
So he knew that hearing an authentic human voice making a passionate case can be a very powerful way to alter someone's behavior. Human authenticity has a lot of power in itself, just the way it is. Hearing it from a person who's genuine is much more persuasive than reading it on a BBC News. It's much more likely to, to, to get through. Still, Polis wasn't sure that this was a good idea. So many Russian speakers outside the country were really angry. He worried he'd just be creating a tool for people to shout at each other. Polis himself was struggling with his feelings about the Russian people. Do you see them as victims or do you see them as complicit? Oh, it's so difficult to distinguish those two things. It's so difficult to distinguish those two things. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, to put all the sympathy I have into this. Is it coming from the fact that I think that's going to create a bridge and I'm cynical? Or, or do I truly have sympathy Polis didn't have a clear answer. What he knew was that this scheme had at least the potential to help shift the tide. So he put his doubts aside and decided to go forward. Look, Polis, you can come up with all problems you want. You know, you can make a problem that don't exist. But if you don't do anything, nothing will happen. Polis says that he and his colleagues worked around the clock for five days until the website, Call Russia, went live about a week and a half into the war. The landing page featured a large yellow button, which randomly generated Russian telephone numbers. And the site was an immediate hit. Polis says they logged 32,000 calls in the first two days. Still, it wasn't until late on launch day that Polis himself was able to sit down and try out this idea. He pressed the yellow button, then called the number that appeared on his screen. The phone was answered by a man. I told them who I am, and, 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 and he started shouting at me immediately. And I, I said, I don't wish anything wrong. I'm just an ordinary person trying to connect to, to people in Russia. And I, I said, do you know what is happening there? And he shouted at me, they are, I remember that very vividly, he shouted at me, they are killing us there, and we're trying to save them. And he said, he cursed at me and hang up the phone. So that was my first conversation. A few calls later, Polis heard the voice of a woman. What I find on calls, most of women will, will, will talk humanly to me, but that lady, she was, um, so that lady yelled at me, like, I don't know, probably seven minutes. And she was saying, do you know who I am? And saying, of course I don't. I don't have a clue. I don't know which, which city I'm calling. Could you tell me, please? And, and she was, uh, I'm the daughter of Putin. <gasps> and now I'm inviting my father to take care of you. No, I know she's not, well, I guess she's not a daughter of Putin, okay? It, it, it can't be that coincidence, right? It, 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 it can't. It, 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 but she started, like, 
playing her joke around it, like, Daddy, there's this Lithuanian who wants to find about the war. And I was saying, like, Madame, why are you doing that? I, I, I truly and genuinely want to talk with you about what is happening in, in, in Ukraine. Can, can, can you tell me, like, what you know about it? And she was like, Daddy. Polo says that many of the calls have been like those, unreceptive, hostile. But then every once in a while, there's a different kind of call. Like the man who answered the phone and at first seemed quite friendly. Soft-spoken, um, polite. And I would just introduce myself. I would tell what I'm doing and uh, what I want to talk about. And, and, and he kept going with me nicely. But at the moment he understood what it's about, he, he shut up. But I could feel he is there. So Polis went forward, told the man about the war. All the terrors that Polis had seen on TV poured out of him. So he, he didn't speak. Like I, I was saying those things like for probably four or five minutes. He wasn't talking a word. And when I finished... Interestingly, he said goodbye. You know, it touched me. He felt he, he, he needed to say goodbye. So, you know, uh, which is such a polite thing to do. So. And you you heard in his silence what? You hear a person breathing. But most probably something that you hear very clearly is, is fear. So... You know, I was shocked that fear has a sound. I can't, I can't tell you what the sound of fear, but you can hear that. Busy. The day we spoke, I watched Polis make a bunch of calls to strangers in different parts of Russia. What struck me was the tedium. It felt like very bizarre geopolitical telemarketing. Wrong number. There were a lot of dead ends. Voicemail. But every once in a while, Polis got through. Dobrying. Да, меня зовут Паулюс, я сам литовец, я волонтер в программе «Позвони России», а мы пытаемся связаться с россиянами, которые хотели бы узнать больше о событиях в Украине. Вы можете со мной переговорить? Нет, спасибо, я там как бы, я в курсе, что там творится. Алло, вас не слышно. So he hang up the phone. He said he knows everything. Um, okay, so that wasn't a good call. Polis makes calls like these several times a week. He spends hours on the phone. Sometimes he gets people like the quiet man, listeners who connect. But mostly, Polis says, people are screaming. And oddly, he thinks that those calls are the best. To me, screaming people are actually... The ones that we need to talk to. What do you mean? Because these, because these are the supporters of what is going on. Mm-hmm. 
in you know it is 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 pleasing and 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 nice for me to have that nice conversation with the other person that I had with several of people it's so nice to have that conversation with those people but is the goal is not about having a nice conversation right is about some of the people that are persuaded uh, that they're doing a good thing in in Ukraine to understand that they're not doing a good thing in Ukraine Polis is realistic about what this approach will accomplish he says about 75% of the russian population supports putin and those people aren't going to suddenly take to the streets but he figures he might nudge them a little so that when they see their neighbors protesting Instead of reaching out to the police to let them know, they might pause, ask themselves if that's really the best thing to do. That's why even when someone is yelling, Polis tries to persevere. Emotionally, how hard is it for you to withstand the screaming? Yeah, it's super hard. No, it is very hard. It's, it's, uh, oh my gosh, uh, so I don't know how to... I mean, you, you, uh, you really travel somewhere. You're in a, in a in a in a in a different world. Do you ever feel like it's not worth it and you can't do it more? No, no. I, I, I there's these people who going, uh, you know, fighting in Ukraine. There's people who's dying. Here's people killed daily. There's like ten people killed today in the bread line. Standing the bread line, like, fuck. how we can do a fucking call? Yeah. Polis told me he'd never know for sure whether anything he was doing made even a whit of difference. But even if these calls were a drop of water for a forest fire, Polis still thought it was important to try. Most of the things people are doing, most probably will have very little or no impact at all. The other day was doing flowers together, like paper flowers together with Ukrainian children. Does doing flowers with Ukrainian children will stop the war in Russia? In, In Ukraine, sorry. Most probably not. But that sense of people coming together and explicitly trying to do something, even if that's futile, it just makes us all of us stronger. Polo says since the website launched, they've been tracking the countries where people were calling from. He told me that at first, calls were mostly from where he was, Lithuania. But soon, he and his colleagues noticed it was spreading. The idea hopping from one country to the next until they saw that Russian speakers from all over the world were reaching out to the people inside Putin's bubble. They'd seen the same problem Polis did, and they were all trying their best to solve it with him. Elise Spiegel is one of the producers of our show. Act two, zoo unto others. On the first day of the war, there were 30 visitors to the zoo in Kiev, Ukraine. On the ninth day of the war, there were none. No paying visitors. That was the day Washington Post reporter Siobhan O'Grady and a couple of her colleagues went there to meet the zookeepers. 
Siobhan had been wondering about the people in Ukraine who were still working while the country had been under siege. Not just military, but everyday workers, pharmacists, grocery store employees. It's the same thought a lot of us have had about essential workers during the pandemic. Except, in this case, there were literally bombs going off around them. She wanted to know what it was like to do their jobs now, under what are probably the most extreme circumstances possible. They went to the zoo in the afternoon, for a few rushed hours before curfew. Siobhan said it was eerie. The giant, colorful giraffe statue at the entrance, after they had just passed through several checkpoints to get there. The winding paths were virtually empty. The zookeepers were keeping the animals inside, partly because of the cold, and also because the animals could be killed if they came out for some exercise at the wrong moment. The zoo is right near a military facility that might be targeted by Russian forces. They were worried about errant missiles. In total, about 50 staffers out of the usual 375 had stayed behind to look after the animals. I asked Siobhan what was behind their decision to stick it out. The ones I spoke to didn't make it sound like a decision. Mm. It wasn't an option. The staff members really felt a responsibility to stay and that that would be the way that they would spend the war. Because there is no one else, right? Right. Like, if they left, what do you think would happen? Would there be anybody that would, like, leap over the zoo wall to... No, the animals would die. 4,000 animals would be locked away in their pens and enclosures, slowly starving to death if dehydration didn't get them first. And not just anyone can do this job. It takes special skill and knowledge. The different animals' dietary needs, some of the animals need to live at different temperatures than others. It's a hefty enough task during peacetime. And of course, lots of aspects of the job are different in a war zone. First of all, the zookeepers are mainly living at the zoo, which they normally would not be doing. Um, the staff moved some of their families in. Um, the head of the zoo, Kirillo Tranton, moved his elderly mother into the zoo with him hmm. to, in order to care for her and the animals. Is it that they can't live at home, or they just thought it was safer at the zoo? It's both. So in some cases, maybe they live in a part of town that could eventually be cut off or made very difficult to get between the zoo and home, uh-huh. in which case they would be separated from each other. And it's also that some of them live in neighborhoods that have already been targeted by strikes. Are they sleeping with the animals? So every night, a staff member has been sleeping with the elephant, Horace the elephant, mm-hmm. to comfort him because elephants are really sensitive in general. They also have enormous ears and really good hearing. So the booms and the sirens have been especially upsetting to him to the point that he's been put on sedatives. And at night, he was apparently waking up, walking around, exhibiting signs of extreme stress. And they were so worried about him that one of the staff members has volunteered to just stay in there with him. And so when he gets stressed at night, they speak to him in a kind of calming voice. They feed him his favorite snacks of apples and things like that and just kind of talk him down after any booms until he can go back to sleep. Some of the staffers and their families occasionally sleep in an aquarium that's still under construction, underground, bunker-like. Siobhan told me you could see where one day, hopefully, there'll be glass and fish. But right now, there are all kinds of cots with pillows and sleeping bags on them. Siobhan imagined how nice and cool it'll be to hang out down there during the summer months, if and when they can finish building it. Wait, wait, 
During their tour of the zoo, the zookeepers handed Siobhan an apple and showed her how to feed Horace, the elephant with sleep trouble. Welcome to Kimsley. (laughs) They visited Tony the gorilla, who's also been agitated. Not because of the explosions, necessarily. He's had no interaction with guests and apparently misses it a lot. Got visibly excited when his handler finally showed up. Also, spat out his lunch all over one of Siobhan's colleagues for some reason. In the administration building, one of the animal handlers was feeding a brand new baby lemur. This incredibly small, soft, delicate thing, especially compared to the chaos it was born into. They named him Bayraktar, which is a kind of Turkish drone the Ukrainians are deploying against the Russians. They were thinking of naming his sibling Javelin. Siobhan asked the zookeepers which of the animals were the least concerned about all of the explosions and sirens. The crocodiles, they said. And the alligator. All they care about is eating. But as interesting as she found the animals, it was really the people she was there to learn about. One of the zookeepers who interested her most was Ivan Ribchenko, who still commutes to the zoo from home on his bike. And I was interested when I saw him because he was feeding a banana to a giraffe. And... The air raid sirens had just gone off. We could hear booms in the background. And both he and the giraffes just didn't react at all. They just continued with the feeding. And he was just being really gentle and sweet with the giraffe. And we were all kind of looking around like, should we take cover? Do you think it's okay? And they were like, you know, we're just going to keep eating this banana. Hmm. Um, So I asked him, you know, why are you still here? He's a young man of fighting age. He's 33. Most guys his age have probably volunteered for the forces or doing something more directly related to the war effort. But he didn't see it that way at all. I mean, he said that his responsibility is the giraffes, the deer, and the horses at the zoo. And his job is a public service and that's his contribution to the to the fight. To the war effort. Yeah. He really saw it that way. He did. Which is something Siobhan has seen a lot of, she says. The people who've chosen to stay and continue doing their jobs amid the fighting, all of them see what they're doing as their role in the defending of Ukraine. After all, along with staving off the day-to-day attacks, they also need to preserve any pockets of normalcy they can, the things they had before the invasion. And that will mean still having a zoo when the war ends one day. You can read Siobhan's article for the Washington Post about the Kiev Zoo at WashingtonPost.com. Coming up, being a voice for the voiceless in possibly the most macabre and yet literal meaning of that phrase. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Sean Cole, in for Ira Glass. Today's program, well, someone had to do something. Stories about someone's stepping up, taking it upon themselves to tackle some problem, large or small, for the greater good, or just for a discreet few. Guess who else is going to? We've reached Act 3 of our show. Act 3, one last thing after I go. All the people tackling problems in the show up to this point identified themselves what needed to be done. In this next story, the person jumping into the fray never even conceived of the thing that he was ultimately asked to do by somebody else. Producer Aviva de Kornfeld explains. This all started a few years back, as a joke. In strange circumstances, yes. 
but definitely was not meant to be taken seriously. Yeah, it was a joke, absolute joke. I, <laughs> and I, I, I mean that literally. This is Bill Edgar, a private investigator in Queensland, Australia. And around the time of the joke, Bill had been looking into some financial matters for a client named Graham. Um, at the time, I didn't know he was terminally ill. It was not until a couple of months in that I was investigating and Graham told me he was terminally ill and he hadn't got long to go. Um, and then I got to know Graham quite well. And, you know, it was one of those things that you start to talk about death, the afterlife, what's going to happen, who's around. And it became apparent that he really had a job he just wanted done. Graham told Bill he had something he wanted said at his funeral. Stuff he wanted to be sure everyone would hear. He thought about making a video of himself giving his own eulogy, but worried his family wouldn't play it. This thing he had to say, it wasn't very funeral appropriate. So as a joke, Bill offered to crash his funeral and say whatever it was Graham wanted said. He, uh, I could see him, his, like his mind was ticking over. Really? You, you like could you could see, see him sort of register? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he had, he had this, this thing about him where you could just see it. And I thought to myself, oh, did I just plant the seed or did the penny drop? Did something just happen then? A couple weeks later, Bill got a text from Graham basically saying, let's do it. Once I'm dead, you go to my funeral and I'll prepare a thing for you to say. I was in a cafe when I received the text. I remember I was about to leave the cafe, but I ended up ordering another coffee and sitting there going fuck am I going to do this? Bill agreed to do it, and Graham explained the situation. After he'd gotten sick and become bedridden, his best friend John had started hitting on his wife, trying to sleep with her. Graham had even seen it happen a few times. His wife told John to knock it off, but he wouldn't stop. And Graham was too sick to really engage or do anything about it. But it made him really mad. So this is what Graham wanted Bill to do. Go to his funeral... And when his best friend stood up to deliver his eulogy, Bill was to interrupt him and call him out for what he'd done. Graham eventually died, and Bill, a total stranger to the family, went to his funeral, armed with Graham's message written on a piece of paper. Bill was nervous. The service started. It was a, it was a blur to start with. I mean, I was sweating profusely. And uh, i, I got to say, it was... Uh, You've got your, your time on your phone, you know, and I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, okay, his mate's about to do the eulogy. And I knew I had to get up within one minute, two minutes most uh-huh. uh, to interrupt the eulogy. And his, his best mate stands up and he starts, you know, blubbering and telling everybody how much he loves his best mate and starts talking about uh, a certain particular time that they shared. And it was that moment I looked at my clock and I went, oh, it's, it's nearly two minutes. And I'm, in that church, they were like long pews mm-hmm. and they were, they were timber. So when you stood up or you even moved, you know, they, all, they made a sound. And, yeah, uh, when I stood up, yeah, it made a sound. And obviously everyone just looked straight at you, you know. I, I froze, to say, honestly. I stood up and I just stood there and went, okay. Bill started reading what Graham had written out for him. My name's Bill Edgar, and I'm here on behalf of the deceased, who has a message for you all. John, it's Graham here. I've hired Bill to interrupt your eulogy to tell you that I witnessed you on several occasions trying to screw my wife. God love her. She rejected every one of your advances. 
But that doesn't change the best the friend, fact John, speed walked out of the church. As Bill heard some people whispering, telling him to sit down. But Bill had a job to do. There was more to read. If my brother, his wife, and their daughter are here, you can kindly fuck off too. I haven't seen you in 30 years, and now you show up to pay your respects. Where were you when I was alive and could have used you around in the hard times? This the brother, along with his wife and their daughter, quickly left the church as well. You could hear a lot of whispering within the, within the mourners, you know, and some mourners are sitting there going, oh, fuck yeah. I don't know why she was here anyway. You know, and I'd be like, oh, cool, at least they're on my side, you know. As quickly as it started, it ended. Bill folded up the paper, put it on top of the coffin, and walked outside to his car. His shirt was soaked through with nervous sweat. He was worried angry relatives might come after him. But at the same time, he was pretty clear on how he felt about the whole thing. Did you like doing it? Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Really? I thought it was brilliant. You know what I loved most? Walking out. I thought that was just, like Graham had the mic drop which is something that not many people get to do, you know. Um, I had the ultimate experience of just walking away from it all uh-huh. and not even knowing what happens to the aftermath. So I'm just walking out and I'm going to my car. And I only just made it to the car when a young girl came running up to me and said that um, her exact words were, Bill, Bill, Dad would have loved that. Thank you so much. Mum's very grateful, hmm. which was really cool, you know. And, and she had another friend with her. And not too much later, that friend reached out to Bill. And she said, here, my auntie needs to see you, and she needs to see you now. Um, Here's my number. Please give me a call as soon as you can. Oh, wow. Yeah. Prior to the funeral, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a a one-off thing, and I'm just going to walk away. um, But it, it wasn't. The auntie, Christine, she was dying of leukemia, and she was secretly in love with her best friend, Carol. Bill did her funeral, and then another, and another. Enough people started reaching out to Bill that he figured he should really pick a name for himself, make this all a bit more official. So he decided on the coffin confessor. Bill's done a bunch of confessions at this point. People pay him to do it. And he likes the work. It suits him. Bill is a man who is constitutionally opposed to artifice. As a private investigator, he sees how messy people's lives really are. So he hates all the pomp and rituals candy-coating most funerals. Feels phony. He thinks it's better when people tell the truth, whatever that truth may be. People say funerals are for the living. Bill thinks that's all wrong. Why shouldn't the dead get a say in how they leave this world? It's their funeral. People hire Bill to confess all kinds of things. Sometimes it's nice stuff. They just want to tell their family they love them one last time. One time, a client asked Bill to interrupt his funeral to apologize to his ex-wife and tell her how much she meant to him. That one went well. Other times, it's something petty. Someone wants to literally get the last word. One guy, an atheist, hired Bill to interrupt his funeral, which he knew his parents would turn into a religious affair against his wishes to say, this is not what I wanted. That one did not go over so well. 
And occasionally, he's asked to reveal something darker. Like with this one recent client, who hired Bill to confess that he'd been having an affair with a neighbor for the past two years. The effect of which would be, this guy's wife would learn, at his funeral, in front of everyone, that he'd been cheating on her. In cases like that, Bill encourages the person to maybe say that themselves, before they die. Obviously, when I sit with him and I say to him, does your wife know? No. Are you going to tell her? Well, no, but I'll leave that to you. I mean, obviously, I'll say to him, you know, probably be nice coming from you. Oh, you'll and say he'll that? And he'll say, oh, yeah, absolutely. And how does that usually go over? No, it never goes over. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just basically, this is what I've written. This is what you're going to do. Do it. Because it's easier to have you do it. Absolutely. In all the funerals Bill's crashed, there's one that sticks with him. This biker guy reached out to Bill, said he had cancer, and that he was interested in hiring him. So Bill drove to the biker's home to meet him. He was this huge, muscly guy, covered with tattoos. Oh, actually, when he first saw me, he said, you? He said, you're the coughing confessor? I said, yeah, mate, you got a problem? And he says, no, not yet. And I said, okay. You know, so I walk up to the balcony, I sit with him, and he goes, well, you know, you crash funerals, so I want you to crash mine. Mine will be a burial. You know, it's, a, it's in a lawn cemetery. He said, uh, and I want you out uh, that I'm gay. And I said, yeah, right, as a joke. And he says, why did I say it as a joke? And I said, okay. I said, so you're gay? And he goes, well, I'm bisexual. And I said, okay, cool. A few months later, the biker dies. As planned, Bill heads to the funeral and waits for his moment to jump in. He stands up midway through the ceremony and reads the letter he was given. Hi, dickheads. I'm dead and you're all still here. Make sure you enjoy what time you have left. Death is a fucking scary adventure. I embraced it. Had to, really. I don't have much of a choice now, do I? Now that I'm gone, I've got something to tell you all. As some of you have known deep down or suspected, I was bisexual. I was in love with a man, and that man stands amongst you right now. I know you're all looking around trying to figure out who he is. You're not going to ever know unless he tells you. But I want you to know I loved him with everything I had. No, it's not David, who right now is probably standing up at the back laughing and looking around. You can all stop looking at David. To those who cared for me, I love you guys. To those that didn't, I'll see you in hell. It's time for me to visit past family and friends. So live well, ride safe, and be true to yourself. That's something I wasn't, but wish I was. It's so easy to not say the thing you want to say to go for years, even a lifetime, not finding the right words or the right moment. Sometimes the right moment is the last one. One final thing to shout over your shoulder into the party as you're walking out the door. Aviva de Kornfeld is one of the producers of our show. 
Act four, a funny thing happened when we were already at the theater. This last story is a counterexample of sorts, where you'd be forgiven for thinking, did somebody have to do something? Or anyway, that's what a lot of people thought in this case. Hannah Jaffewald has the story. Here's what happened. A group of people went to a movie theater near Los Angeles to see The Lost City. It was a 7 p.m. showing, but the projector was broken. So everyone in the audience was stuck waiting. 10 minutes, 20. And then a woman from the audience walked down to the front of the theater in front of everyone and started doing stand-up. So, I am a single mom. Do we have any single moms in the house? Any single moms in the house, she says? There's short clips of this online. She's in a beige dress, long, straight hair, waving her arms all over the place, trying to project her voice to the back of the theater. The act is chaotic and hard to follow. She's pretty all over the place. Um, I believe in Buddha. Jesus was never married. She does voices. She chants. And she sings. These are people who showed up to see Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum roam around in the jungle. Instead, they got this. They're tweets from audience members who are not happy about that switch. One of them says, a woman has decided to try her stand-up out on us. It's not good. Another one says, I want to crawl out of my skin and die. In one of the videos posted online, you can hear someone in the audience actually interrupt her act to yell, put us out of our misery. The woman's response, this is what got me. She says, do you want to come down here and try to entertain people? As if entertaining everyone in this theater was a job someone obviously had to do. So walk me through the thinking of nominating yourself to be the one to do that. I'm just very outspoken. Like, I have no problem talking to people. I don't get nervous in front of crowds. So I just felt like nobody else was going to, so I might as well try to, you know, communicate with everyone. The woman's name is Tiffany King. She's 42 years old, Latina, lives in Los Angeles. She has one eight-year-old daughter. She does many things, waitresses, sings, she does college online, and sometimes does stand-up. And the way Tiffany King ended up performing unsolicited comedy that night. There's the story on the internet, and then there's her story, which is different. Tiffany says she took her daughter to the movies that night. So we got there, and the movie wasn't starting. And I was getting only annoyed. I was getting annoyed because my daughter has school the next day. And I'm like, okay, when is this movie going to start? Everyone was just sitting around, Tiffany says, waiting. So she turns to her daughter and says, wouldn't it be funny if I go introduce the movie like I'm with the theater? Do it, her daughter says. So Tiffany gets up in front of everyone. Hello, welcome to the theater. We're so glad to have you. This show will be starting shortly. And then she says, just kidding, I'm a comedian, but I do hope you all have a good night. And she sits down. But then they're still waiting and waiting and nobody's doing anything. So Tiffany gets up again, decides, I'm gonna go find out what's going on. She goes down to the lobby. A guy tells her the projector's broken. They're working on it. She told them, we're sweating like crazy in there. The guy says they'd work on the AC. Then Tiffany says she went back to the theater and walked up front 
just to tell everyone what was going on. She said the projector's broken, they're working on it, they know we're hot in here, they'll try to get the AC back. And then there was a Latino couple in the front, and the guy goes, oh, hey, if you're a comedian, can you tell us some jokes? And I was like, sure. And I don't, I don't even remember hesitating because I like to help. <laughs> I'm like, makes me happy to make people happy. So I was like, okay. And what did it feel like when you started telling jokes? Honestly, I was just pulling random clean jokes. I, I was just trying to string together some clean jokes that would not be inappropriate for my daughter. So she went with a truly random collection of jokes. And from Tiffany's perspective, it was going fine. People were laughing, clapping. And everything was going, everything felt great until the girl huckled me. Uh She was like, please, no, put us out of our misery. It was only the next day that Tiffany learned some of her audience had not appreciated being subjected to an unwanted comedy show. But for me, knowing that Tiffany started as a person who was trying to deliver information about the movie, doesn't that change things? Like, she was the one person trying to get answers to a problem that a whole room full of people shared. She was trying to pass on information, and it turned into this. Because this is who Tiffany is. Here's what I was thinking when Tiffany recounted this experience to me. I was thinking about when I was at the airport, and I was instructed to stand in a line for a desk that had no person at it. I stood there anyway. A long line of other people stood there anyway, too, quietly. Except for one woman who could not bear it, who was actively, loudly shouting to everyone and no one walking by that we needed help. I kept looking down like I'm not with her. But I was also glad for her. Because ultimately, she got someone to help us. To tell us that we actually needed to go to a different desk where there was a person, where the printer was working. And the yelling woman, she led the way. We all followed her. My point is, the person who takes it upon themselves to do something, they don't always do it in the way you would. They're not perfect. But neither are we, waiting in line for the desk with no person or for the movie that's not starting. When you're sitting in a theater full of people who are not doing anything, does it, is it as mystifying to you that people wouldn't want to do something as it is to someone like me that you would want to do something? When all this happened, I flashed back in my mind to a moment in high school when I think it was science class, but we had to like go into another room talked to another class, and I think I sang opera for some reason, because I had my brother from an early age, and my grandmother was a mariachi singer, and I remember this young guy being like, or this kid my age, being like, damn, Tiffany, you got some balls. So, I don't think that the people that do anything, um, that there's anything wrong with them. I just think that we all have a different purpose in life, and I feel that I have a purpose, which is to entertain and to lead people sometimes in certain situations. We need people. We need go-getters. We need people that are going to solve problems, right? I was just trying to solve the problem and be helpful in the moment. I asked, did she consider that this was a situation where maybe no one needed help? Nobody needed to do anything? Tiffany said no. The thought never crossed her mind. Which I think is probably an important part of being a person who rushes to be helpful. A person who acts. You can't ask yourself that question. 
Hannah Joffe-Walt is one of the producers of our show. When the light is gone And you're on your own You've been trying but the fight never goes away And you don't know when the sun will shine again. All you gotta do is look my way. If you got a problem, I got a problem too. If you're standing at the bottom, I'll reach out for you. Today's program was produced by Lily Sullivan and edited by Ben Calhoun. The people who put our show together include Bim Adewunmi, Elna Baker, Zoe Chase, Dana Chivas, Michael Comite, Andrea Lopez-Crusado, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hannah Joffe-Wall, Tobin Lowe, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Will Pyshell, Elise Spiegel, Laura Starcheski, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Managing Editor Sarah Abdurrahman, Senior Editor David Kestenbaum. Our Executive Editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Whitney Shefty, Kostjantin Hudoff, Lessa Prokopenko, Christopher Solomon, Brian Hans, Kate Swoger, Ali DeGroote, Maggie Stapleton, Eric Dean Wilson, Sam Schiller, Joe Kremer, Melissa San Miguel, and Stacey King. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, of course, to my boss, Ira Glass. When I started working here, I was uh, nervous, and I said to him, I was like, well, do you prefer, should I call you... Mr. Glass, should I call you Ira, you know, and he's like, no, 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 you can call me. Daddy! I'm Sean Cole. Ira will be back next week with more stories of this American life. You got a problem, I got a problem too. If you're standing at the bottom, I'll reach out for you. If you got a problem, I'll reach out for you.